working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with bassist Damian Erskine. Damian lives in Portland and is active around the world as a performer and educator, and yes, he is the nephew of friend of Working Drummer Podcast and two-time guest, the great Peter Erskine. Even though Damien grew up with Uncle Peter around and actually started on drums, he was into rock and metal at first, and it wasn't until his adult life that his musical path brought him opportunities to play with and learn from Peter. He is currently the touring bassist for Gino Vanelli and is involved in various original projects throughout the Pacific Northwest. He was also part of the Peter Erskine New Trio, did a residency and video shoot at the Blue Note in Tokyo with the Jaco Pastorius Big Band, and tours with Peter's new band, Dr. Um. If you want to support what we do here at Working Drummer, there are buttons for PayPal and Patreon on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. We're in the process of devising some new stuff for Patreon donors, so we'll keep you apprised of that. And be aware that those benefits will apply no matter when you become a patron. So if you started donating last year or yesterday, or if you start tomorrow, you will be grandfathered into those new perks when we unveil them. As always, every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at workingdrummer.net or on Facebook and Instagram. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag workingdrummer, and we'll be featuring those in our stories. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, and leave us a rating and review on those platforms. This helps new listeners find us. Now it's time once again for an update from our friend Arjuna Contreras. Hello. Hey, man. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good, man. How are you <clears throat> on this fine Wednesday? <laughs> I'm doing great. Just getting my day started. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. It's, it's, uh... yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I should tell you I'm an hour behind you, though, also. So, like, oh, I'm oh, so it's, it's only 1230. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's only coming up on 1230 right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where are you, man? Uh, Boulder, Colorado today. Okay. Yeah, we're still out, still out on tour. You know, we're about halfway through um, this run that we have going here in April. Um, yeah, we're playing, uh, playing in Boulder tonight, had the day off yesterday here in town. Boulder's a pretty cool, cool little area. I don't think I've spent that much time here before. I mean, I know I've played a show or two, but it's always been like kind of dropping in and dropping out. But is the Fox Theater there in Boulder? That, that's actually where we're playing tonight. Yeah. Fox nice, Theater. nice, man. Yeah, yeah. I love that place, man. I had a chance to play there. A while ago, and I've got some pictures that a friend of mine, a professional photographer, took, and then those pictures ended up being used for many years. You know, you get that like, oh, nice. You know, you get that that picture that somebody takes on a gig, and you're like, that's a good shot. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use that, and it's always at the Fox Theater there in Boulder. What a cool place! Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 We're looking looking forward to it. Um, should be good. You know, a couple of days ago we were we played out in Estes Park, which was gosh, that it's really beautiful out there mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we we actually played at the Stanley Hotel, <laughs> you know, the, oh. where uh, Stephen where Stephen King, you know, like I allegedly like had the, a nightmare that led to his, you know, to writing the sh- of the of the Shining. Oh, yeah, gosh. like I guess he wrote it wrote it at that hotel. 
How is the pacing of the tour going? Are, are you having some time off to, to kind of like regenerate before in between shows? Yeah, you know, on this one, we've had a couple more days off than we're used to having, okay. which has been really great. Um, one was an accidental day off. We actually had a show cancellation in Wichita because it was Kansas. It was supposed to be an outdoor show. And the weather was just too cold. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's been it's been a little bit uh, slower pace than usual. I mean, usually um, when we're on the road, it's uh, six nights on, one night off, with like our night off usually being Monday. Okay. But this tour, it's like we've already had th- we've only we've been out for two weeks, and we've already had three days off. Um. So yeah, it's it's been good. I mean, I I feel great. I feel probably more. Uh, awake than in previous com- previous conversation that we've had. <laughs> Is there anything that you're doing like intentionally during these days off to kind of keep yourself kind of mentally and physically in shape? Yeah, I have been. Well, um, the one thing is I'm really, really on top of walking. Like I already have planned out, you know, after we finish talking, I'm going to walk from the hotel here to the venue, which is a mile yeah. And I'm going to walk back after sound check. So I've been really like, I've, I know I've been mentioning that in previous For sure. conversations, but I've been really, I've been really sticking on the walking thing. I mean, I haven't really gotten into, you know, lifting weights much. And I know that I, there's got to be a balance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been doing the cardio a lot and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I use this meditation app like every morning, which I, which I really think I'm seeing some, uh, <clears throat> some benefit from, just in in terms of helping me be more uh, mindful and helping me um, kind of stay more in the moment than yes. I usually am. Like I've always been someone who's always overthought things in the past or mm-hmm. things in the potential mm-hmm. future. And like um, this app, that, I mean, there's a lot of great apps, you know, for the, you know, for iPhone or Android that are kind of like guided meditation type ones. And the one that I use is really nice. I really, really like it. Let me ask you about um, just as far as the time off and, and curating contacts and, you know, kind of expanding a, a network in as much as you can while you're on the road. Do you find yourself doing anything like yeah. being proactive as much as you can? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to stay in touch with the people that I know in Nashville, for example, um, you know, I think I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago or one of our last conversations that it looked like there was a, uh, another gig on lower Broadway and that did come through. So like, I'll be doing that. Like when I'm back in town, okay. you know, I, I think I might've mentioned also that there's a couple of guys in the rockabilly scene, um, that are, that live in Nashville and have asked me to do some recording with yeah. them in May. Well, cool. I'm going to let you go so you can walk. I'm doing, I'm planning on doing the same thing, as a matter of fact, when I'm finished doing some recording. Oh, right so <laughs> be in the same spirit. Cool. You'll be a, you'll be about a mile, um, above me. Above you. <laughs> Just yeah. be aware the oxygen, <laughs> oxygen is a little bit thinner up there. Right. <laughs> All right, my friend, we'll have a great rest of the week and I'll, I'll talk to you real soon. Sounds good, man. You too. Take care of okay. brother. See you, man. Bye-bye. All right. All right. Bye-bye. So I had a really fun talk with Damien. It was great to get the bassist perspective on a few things, hear about the Portland scene, and of course, get his take on his Uncle Peter. So here we go. Hope you dig my chat with Damien Erskine. What's keeping you busy these days, man? Well, let's see. Um... I've been touring with a guy named Gino Finelli for about 10 years. 
Yeah, he's a he's an old name. <laughs> yeah, he's been, he's been, been around, around for a while. For a he's kind of really popular in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and then uh, it's kind of a long story. But he wound up getting blacklisted by labels, so kind of disappeared for a while. So he's almost got this kind of cult status with uh, uh, quite a hefty and rabid fan base. <laughs> And uh, so yeah, we bounce we bounce around, do a little little bit of everything, a little bit everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, also have a tour coming up with Peter Erskine. Yeah, Uncle and, Peter, uh, Uncle Pete, <laughs> John Beasley, and Bob Shepard. We're going to Europe for a few weeks. Uh, Jesus, that's a band. Yeah, I, I'm subbing for a guy named Benjamin Shepard. Yeah. Uh, who uh, he's from New Zealand, and I, I guess he had some. The government shutdown was happening as he was trying to renew his green card or something like that. Oh, for Christ's <laughs> sake! <laughs> so he panicked and canceled. So I'm subbing for him. I actually subbed for him last year as well. Did a similar tour with these guys. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So you you can count yourself among the uh, tiny mi- minority who actually benefited from the government shutdown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. What a mess. Yeah, um, but man, what a band that is. That's, that's, that's a real treat. Yeah, so that's Peter's, like, Dr. Um band, right? Correct. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, so Gino Vanelli, like, how long have you been touring with him? I've been touring. I first worked with him 2009. I recorded an album called A Good Thing with him. And I, I don't think I started touring with him till 2010, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, so it's, it's been a while. And he had a couple hits back in the day, right? Like, what were the... Yeah, I Just Want to Stop was one of his big ones. That's the one that I remembered most from my youth. Okay. I just want to stop and tell you right. what. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then depending on what region of the world you're in, he did different hits in different places, but Black Cars. Brother to Brother was a big album, especially with the musicians. Cool. Um, had Jimmy Haslip on bass, and, and I think maybe Neil Steubenhouse did some stuff. I'm not sure. Exactly. I think Jimmy was on that album. Okay. Um, yeah, he's always had great bands, and this one is no exception. It's a, it's a fun gig. Yeah, who's who's the drummer, and who else is in the band? Um, it's all local Portland guys. Um, is Gino so based in Portland, too? He is. He's been here for 20-some years now. His wife is originally from this area. Okay. Um, so when uh, he left L.A., um, God, I don't know if that was 80s or 90s, probably 90s sometime. Um, they moved up here, and he lives just outside of Portland. Okay. And so, yeah, Reinhardt Meltz is the drummer on that gig, and he's the local uh, local badass. He's, he's, he's phenomenal. Cool. Um, he's also the drummer on all my albums, and we, we play together a lot. He's, he's my brother. Cool. Um, yeah, and then uh, Greg Goble on piano, uh, Jay Coder on guitar, Patrick Lamb leads the horn section, and then we farm out a couple of horns in every town we play. Right. Well, so they they always change it up, but right. yeah, it's a solid band. And is that is that the kind of thing where you're out for like a weekend or a week at a time? For the most part, um, Gino doesn't love being on the road he, he's actually kind of a studio rat he loves just creating content in his studio his home studio mm-hmm. um so yeah a lot of the gigs are uh, you know four week four day weekends and um usually if we're going to europe or asia it might be two weeks but almost never longer than that um in a couple of weeks here we go to canada so we'll do one date in toronto two in montreal and then come back home you know quick right four or five days out gotcha 
Um, and what, what kind of trouble do you get into in, in Portland when you're not on the road? Uh, well, I do a little bit of teaching. I teach at Portland State, um, but pretty much just play with a little bit of everybody. Um, it's maybe 40% jazz gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, usually more kind of modern, original, contemporary stuff since I don't play upright and there's a lot of phenomenal upright players in town. Right. To I was going to ask if you play upright. Yeah, not well. <laughs> right. Um, I have I have my dad's old, my biological father um, toured with Stan Kenton for years. Oh, wow. And I actually have his bass because he can't play anymore. Um, and I, for a little while, I started trying to work it up and I feel like I might as well be, you know, playing clarinet or something. It's it's just an entirely different animal. Yeah. Um, I always tell guys, folks, as long as you're not worried about time, tone, or intonation, you know, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> Pass me that upright, baby. Let me add it. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's some phenomenal uh, upright players in town. A couple of guys who are really strong doublers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I just pretty much catch a lot of the electric stuff. Right. Um. And I was lucky. I moved here in 2004, and I was lucky enough to be a solid reader. And not a lot of the electric guys in town were readers. Everybody in Portland is pretty specialized. You have blues guys, jazz guys, funk mm-hmm. guys. Um, and uh, I, I kind of got to work quickly because you could just throw a book of music at me, regardless, right. salsa or you know, whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, I play... Uh, you know, depending on the time of year, usually between three and five nights a week yeah. locally, yeah. just different jazz clubs, different bars, restaurants, whatever. Mm-hmm. A little bit of teaching, and yeah, that's about it. And is the the Portland scene um, kind of self contained, or I mean, it, it seems it seems like it's part of that kind of northwestern corridor of you know San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver. Um, yeah, I see a lot of musicians just kind of bouncing up and down that that coast there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do a fair amount of that as well, um, you know, going down south to Ashland and, and places like that in southern Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, and then playing in Seattle quite a bit with Tarek Abuzaid, who you recently interviewed. Right, yeah, thank you for hooking us up, man. He was a great a great hang. Yeah, he's a, he's a funny guy and a good conversationalist. He's a, he's a good hang for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, we make our way up and down quite a bit. Portland is... Um, Portland, for the size of the city, it's a really rich scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of really phenomenal players. They might not be, you know, the chairs might not run as deep in a, as a place like New York or L.A. Yeah. Um, where the, you know, the top tier on each instrument, there might only be really one, two, maybe three guys. I keep, I don't mean to be gender specific. Right. Um, people. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Old habits die hard. I know, man. I'm trying to be aware. Um but yeah, you know, when I first moved here, I actually emailed Peter and said, you know, I'm thinking of going to Portland. You know, what do you think of that scene? Because I didn't actually know the city that well. I just had the uh, things lined up in a way that I could come here. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, man, you're going to love it. It's like a retirement community for great musicians, <laughs> and great jazz musicians. And it's it's kind of true. There's a, a real a real wealth of talent here. Yeah. Yeah. And. I think like most cities, we've been hit with the, uh, the closing of a lot of jazz clubs and then 
smaller places trying to pick up the slack a little bit and have live music. So there's a little bit of a lack of venues right now. Right. And I think uh, Tariq was saying that um, the the Pacific Northwest got hit particularly hard in in that regard because, uh, you know, property values and rents have, have gone up so drastically. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, um, much like he was saying about Seattle, Portland has had a surge of transplants, you know, are, are so many people have been moving here, um, but that hasn't necessarily translated into a, a, a more solid outing at the club. You know, the clubs aren't just packed because of it. It's still right. the same, kind of the same old crew coming to gigs and the same music lovers who always came. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful place to live, and it's a certainly a lot cheaper than New York or L.A. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you can still, even though the prices have gone up, um, you can still have a you know two story house here for the price of a of an apartment. And yeah, most other major markets. So. Right, right. So you moved there in two thousand four. Um, yeah. Where where were you before that, and and how old were you, and where where were you in life? Well, I was a. Uh, I came here technically from Boston, huh. um, but I was actually via San Francisco. My wife and I were in the Bay Area uh, for four or five years, um, playing there, very kind of settled and established and happy there, but it's just too expensive, working too hard, working a day job and gigging every night of the week, and I was yeah. trying to get myself to live above a liquor store. Um, <laughs> And actually, the scene in San Francisco, although there's a lot of phenomenal players, it's not a great place to gig and make money. It's really tough to kind of scrape it all together there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started getting a hankering for the East Coast. I'm originally from New Jersey. I thought maybe I'll head back east. Went back to Boston, actually finished up my I was a Berkeley dropout, finished up my degree thinking I'd meet, you know, the players, kind of reestablish myself. Yeah. And it didn't take too long before I realized, no, I've been on the West Coast too long. I'm not not vibing on this. Right. Um, still don't want to be broke in New York, so I'm going to go back and had some friends in the Portland area that yeah. I connected with and wound up here and uh, never regretted it. It's been great. Cool, cool. And so you said you were a Berkeley dropout. Yeah. Did, and did you, did you ever end up getting a degree from anywhere? Yeah, I wound up graduating while I was in Boston. That was kind of the one thing I did there. Oh, so you finished at Berkeley. Yeah, I finished. Uh, I was. I went ninety three to ninety six, then dropped out, and then wound up technically graduating in two thousand three, I think, or two. Okay. Um, basically, I just had to take all the gen ed stuff and all the uh, intro to music technology type classes that I never took the first time around because I never really intended on graduating. Right. Right. <laughs> So it was just a lot of catch up. What was your Berkeley experience like with the the first one and the second one? Well, uh, not great. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I started uh, the first time around. I was primarily a drummer. That's Tariq mentioned that. Like he he said, you you have a, a skeleton in your closet. That's uh, in, you know the the skeleton of a metal drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was very much into into drums, but. But going to a place like Berkeley, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a musician, so I thought, well, I should go to music school. Um, but then entering a jazz program as kind of a metal and hard rock drummer, you know, Jane's Addiction was the closest I came to jazz <laughs> at that point. Um, I really just felt lost. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have the same skill set as other people. I, yeah. I 
had never read anything on drums. I was a single stroke guy, you know, and I never did the rudiments or anything. I was just kind of a self-taught metal drummer. Um, but I had always played a little bass and I, I thought, well, I'm just floundering here doing this. Plus I was lazy and I wasn't schlepping my drums all over the place to practice. So I wasn't right. even shedding anymore. Yeah. Um, so I switched my major to bass and then I got my butt kicked because I just had so much catching up to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I could read cause I've always read, but I didn't know I'd never improvised. I'd never I didn't know blues changes. I'd never played anything, but just in my room playing things out of books. Right. Um, so I, I just, uh, I was swimming upstreams with, you know, with my hands and my legs tied behind my back. <laughs> and eventually I just dropped out. I kind of even stopped went going to classes and I, I stopped trying maybe mm-hmm. last year or so. Um, so I never played in any ensembles, never played in any combos. Right. And, I, and actually almost, almost, quit music um i was so dejected when i left the program i just thought man i must not have whatever it takes to do this yeah and uh started working a lot of crappy day jobs you know like graveyard shifts at gas stations and stuff like it and you're what like 20 at this point yeah yeah early 20s um and then eventually i decided well you know it's there's nothing i enjoy doing more than music so let me at least you know, just start working towards that because maybe if nothing else, maybe I can find a good band and something will happen. Maybe I'm not meant to be a phenomenal musician. Maybe I can just have fun playing. Right. And uh, kind of slowly got pretty into the process and wound up teaching myself jazz harmony and, you know, taking lessons with piano players here and there to pose questions I had. Huh. So, so like the bug, the bug didn't bite you at Berkeley, like kind of having all these musicians around you and having this faculty at your disposal didn't inspire you to, to kind of, uh, you know, take it seriously or work hard at it. What, what did like just work in the graveyard Uh, at the gas station? Like pretty much. Yeah. yeah. You know, I moved to LA, I was driving a AAA service truck, changing tires on the freeway and stuff. And it's just so many, so many crappy jobs. Um, yeah, interestingly, I mean, I always had the bug my entire life, except for that period when I was at Berkeley. Hmm. Like, it almost killed the bug for me. Wow. Um, but I kind of rediscovered it afterwards and just started, you know, I just kind of said, well, screw it. And I just started taking every gig I could get, whether I was qualified for it or not. Um, you know, whenever I got my, my butt handed to me on a gig, I'd take notes about what went wrong and then schedule a lesson with somebody and, you know, hammer away at them. Like, you know, help me figure this stuff out. Cause it's, it's not working. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. And eventually it, things just kind of started to come together. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I, you know, you hear so many stories from people who went to Berkeley or North Texas or, uh, like a big competitive school where they got there and they were the small fish in the big pond and everybody around them was better and they were just getting their ass kicked and and that inspired them and motivated them. Right. To, and but I th- I think I I relate to you a little bit more. Like being in a super competitive environment kind of makes me shut down <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Especially as a younger player. Um, yeah. I just didn't have any of that. Uh, that confidence internally and and it was a very competitive environment you know you could always tell the Berkeley kids at at concerts because they'd be the ones sitting in the back with their arms folded just kind of judging everything as it happened in real time (laughs) and I was just I was just like no I'm not putting myself out there for that I know I'm not worthy right right Uh, 
but yeah, you know, and then I was, I was lucky enough to connect with a few, uh, great teachers and a couple of folks who started, you know, occasionally throwing me sub work, mm-hmm. getting me some, you know, so I could really get my feet wet. Cause I'd never played bass in front of people, <laughs> <laughs> right? you know, so I had a lot of catching up to do. And a lot of ear training to do and a lot of just learning, you know, even just, you know, common turnarounds and basic funk tunes. And yeah, so I just I just kind of worked as hard as I could. And, and ultimately, I hit a point where I decided if I was going to do it, I needed to really do it. And so I quit my day job. And uh, thankfully, with the blessing of my wife, made uh, my my ability and my career and everything made that my day job. So if I wasn't gigging, I was practicing or I was you know, working on something, right. whether it was creating t- content or just, you know, trying to figure out how harmony worked or whatever. Right. And uh, it paid off eventually. like 18 minutes into this conversation and all the drummers listening are screaming at me, like ask him about (laughs) Peter. Um, so what, what role did, did your uncle Peter play in kind of your, your musical development? I mean, what, what was your relationship like with him as a kid? Well, he was always uncle Pete, you know, and he was, you know, certainly, you know, kind of the cool uncle because, you know, whenever he showed up, he had some new gadget that he brought back from a tour in Japan and, you know, stuff like that. He does enjoy the gadgets. <laughs> he does. <laughs> we have that in common. Yeah. Um, but uh, musically speaking, our styles were so divergent that we never really um, connected in that way. Hmm. Uh, it was just a very much a familial connection. Mm-hmm. Um it wasn't until much later. I mean, I don't, I think the first time I played with him was 2000, maybe 2009. Wow. Um, and yeah, and I'd never, you know, even as a drummer, I'd never really hit him up for lessons or, you know, anything. He was just uncle Pete and he was jazz guy and I was not jazz guy. And, you know, I did that thing. And, um, but in 2000, I think it was nine. He, uh, I was in LA for the NAMM show. And he hit me up and said, why don't you swing by the house? I got asked to put together a, something completely new for a tour of South America. And he had just met Vardan of Sepian, who's a wonderful Armenian pianist in and a, L.A. And a, and a wizard. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> that dude. Is, and yeah. so I got, I got together with those guys and just sight read my way through a handful of charts. and uh, And they dug it. You know, I was I was a little worried that it was uh, just nepotism getting me in the door because I was like, I can think of a you know a dozen guys you play with regularly that would probably do a better job. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my own insecurity, right? Talking, and I quickly realized he wouldn't sacrifice the quality of the music and the tour if he didn't actually feel like I was doing a good job. So I did that tour and and it went really well. And so we kind of kept on from there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting that you didn't, you didn't, uh, kind of have him as a, a a musical mentor in your, in your younger years. And, and you just kind of skipped ahead to playing a gig with him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, yeah. Cause I was certainly, 
I uh, got to observe him in his uh, natural habitat <laughs> plenty when I was a kid. <laughs> right. You know, going to weather report shows and uh, my grandfather, his father, would drive me up to New York and we'd go see him play at 7th Avenue South with, you know, everybody, Breckers and right. – and um, so I got so to you see. Were, you're, you're old enough to have seen Peter with Jocko. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, actually, apparently my very first concert, uh, my grandfather for, talked my mom into bringing me to a weather report concert when I was two, uh, two weeks old. Wow. So that was my first one. And actually got to sit down with Jocko for a minute hmm. um, backstage with a bass and he showed me some you know, I told, showed him what I was working on. He showed me some different fingerings for scales and things. You know, super remedial, but he was he was cool. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I got to see him in that environment a lot. And playing with him was a trip because, for me, it wasn't so much. You know, oh crap, this is Peter Erskine. I want to sound good. For me, it was like, oh man, this is Uncle Pete. I don't want to disappoint. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like I really yeah. respect this guy. Yeah, I know who he's been playing with. Um, so yeah, it, it took me a little while to get over that. Right. Um, but yeah, now we just now we just have fun out there, and and he's he's very supportive, and he you know, and he's. He's got a good critical ear, and he know what he wants. And he 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 definitely gives me advice along the way, like maybe you know don't do this so much, and especially with the walking stuff, because I'm not, although I play a lot of jazz, I'm not steeped in that tradition, and I'm not a straight ahead guy. Right, right, um, yeah. That so, it's you know like walking on the bass. I mean, you know, being able to read through changes and improvise and and you know harmonic knowledge and all that is I I've think of that as kind of a separate skill from actually walking yeah and very es- much so. especially on electric man like to make a, a four on the floor walking bass like feel good on the electric is hard i would imagine i've never tried it but yeah there's a lot of things i had never thought about i mean first was time feel because mm-hmm. uh, at that point i was doing a lot more r&b and funk stuff so i always felt everything on the back end of the beat yeah and that was the first thing is like, no, you're driving the train. Like, you know, your notes and my ride symbol need to be right. We're the tip the of the spear. Along. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then there was just the, the simple fact that everything you do on electric is so audible as mm-hmm. compared to an upright um, that he, he quickly, you know, if I remember first time he did a swinging thing, I immediately started doing ding, 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 you know, yeah. doing all Little, the little chugs and flubs and and he's immediately like no no <laughs> <laughs> cut that shit out just right. give me four you know give me quarter notes because um, he said for him the the trick was you know he's just not used to hearing every single thing the bass player does with such clarity you know everything is so present right um, so you really need to kind of uh, watch yourself I think drummers run into that too I was I was talking with a student of mine yesterday about how you know, as as a drummer, we'll listen to a, a song or a tune, and we'll hear all kinds of you know polyrhythmic content and this you know just this rhythmic crossfire happening in the song, and and we'll think that to recreate that song, it's that's all up to us. Like we have to do all of oh, that content, when in fact, like a very little bit of it 
is happening actually on the drums and the rest of it is is happening just kind of in the in the rhythm guitar part or in the bass part or or, the, or whatever else is going on and it's interesting that you had that same experience like with a swing bass line with a walking bass line you wanted to participate in all that kind of all those skip beats yeah um, but and that was the probably the strong the best lesson i got from peter was uh I, i've started calling it the art of reduction mm-hmm. um, but the fact that you know when you hear something somebody's doing, the inclination is to immediately start kind of mimicking that right. and doing it with them, especially if it's a polyrhythmic thing. Um, but th- uh, through talking to Peter, I realized that stuff you know it immediately loses its impact when it's no longer operating against what you're doing. Right. You know, so everybody starts doing that. Now everybody's just doing that. And this, you know, um, so, you know, working with contrast and, uh, you know, less, less really is more. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading in, in his book, he, he talked about that. Like when he was in weather report, Joe Zavanul was, was, uh, just, it infuriated him <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if Peter or anybody else would like kind of jump on the same thing that, that Zavanul was doing. Um, and, and he'd always say like, don't, don't do that. Do something else, do something that counters that or don't, you know, do nothing. Just let me do it, you know? And, and I've been <laughs> thinking about that a lot in, in my playing, just either staying home on what I'm doing or, trying to think of something different to to kind of interlock with uh you know whatever it is i want to interact with um yeah. it sounds like peter peter's carrying on that that philosophy very much so he uh he, he always says don't don't copy me compliment me mm, yeah um and i've heard mark johnson uh, say similar things you know i remember he said any anybody any parrot can just repeat something back to you but it takes a real musician to to compliment what is happening and to you know make a musical statement out of it that's complimentary yeah yeah Uh, and i've I've found that like in order to compliment something all i have to do is continue what i was doing right right yeah (laughs) i mean if somebody goes off on a thing you know rather than go off on the thing with them i've i've found that if i just stay home on on whatever track i was on like it it just automatically kind of creates that push and pull that um uh kind of against the grain feeling yeah yeah i've i've uh gotten really into the the kind of brain game of of uh listening to myself in the third person hmm. uh, when I'm playing, you know, listening to the band as a whole, as yeah. if I was sitting in the audience and trying to trying to discern what I really wanted to hear and what would really make the music happen and not just what can I do to wow that one bass player who's in the back or, you know, how can I make the drummer giggle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's so easy to do that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's low hanging fruit, man. Like, making a drummer giggle. <laughs> Yeah, usually I just fart off to the side. And he's <laughs> <rolling>. <laughs> oh man! Um, yeah. So I've I've interviewed a, a number of uh, Peter's former drum students, and and they all have they all have a, a, a tough love story about Peter when when he was kind of brutally honest with them about something, or or uh, tore him down a little bit, you know, before <laughs> building them back up. Um, do you, do you have any, uh, memories of, of situations like that? None that stick out. Um, but he, he inherited a quality from my grandfather, um, 
in, in as much as he could, he can kind of cut you to the quick with a word and without malice, you know, yeah. like <laughs> just completely like kind of neutrally presented, but he can just, you know, say, give you two words and you're just like immediately chopped off at the knees. <laughs> um, and it's not intentional. It's not. It's not a cruelty thing. And it, you know, and if anything, he's trying to help you because he's he's doing the same thing that was done to him. You know, he's he's told me stories of people that chopped him off at the knees, but they were already they were always you know ultimately growth experiences. Right. right. Uh, so as long as you can kind of keep your ego in check and not get defensive or not just get to completely dejected and hide and you know right in a corner. Um, <laughs> And then take it for what it is and take it to heart and put it into practice. You know, I've always, every time I've discovered that, yeah, that was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. Right. And, and like you said, there's, uh, there's no, there's no malice or cruelty in it. Like it's in the interest of the music. Like Peter is acting and speaking on behalf of the music that he holds so dear and he doesn't want you to fuck it up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, and that's, that's the thing is Peter has such a respect for the craft and such respect for the music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can remember doing a session and especially when you're doing music, uh, by certain composers, he has a special place in his heart for, uh, both Jocko and Vince Mendoza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And man, if you're playing music with him that he's done with those people, uh, you better treat it with the utmost respect. Right. And I've heard him, I remember him turning to a piano player in a session and stopping and saying, it's not a fucking piano bar. Play the part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, meaning like stop trying to ornament everything. Play what's written. Play right. this music as it's supposed to be. And it's because he knows exactly how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And I swear he's got like a like an eidetic musical memory, hmm. um, photographic memory for music. He he remembers everything about even your know, tunes he might not have played for years yeah you just count off at the perfect tempo and play it as if as if you know he's been working on it all week wow um so he's he's just got it's all in there and he he takes it very seriously and he's always very focused um i remember a buddy of mine asking him how he played so consistently and and just perfectly all the time and he said, eh, I pay attention. <laughs> he's not thinking about doing the laundry when he's playing. You know, he puts everything he has into, into every brush stroke and right. every sim- Yeah, that was the first thing I noticed about him. The first time I saw him play live, I was, I, was uh, I don't know, maybe a junior in college. And uh, I was in Indiana. We went to Indianapolis, the Jazz Kitchen, to see his trio with Alan Pasqua and Dave Carpenter. Yeah, and I I had never seen him live, and and that music that they played, those tunes, most of them were super simple and very stripped down, uh, and Peter played brushes most of the time, and yeah. just like like you said, the concentration with which he executed like sixty BPM quarter notes on the ride with a right. brush, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I had never seen anything like that, and I was like, wow, you can you can make one note that heavy like you know yeah with that much feeling yeah and the only surefire way to you know to piss him off when you're making music is to do something that's a disservice to the music yeah you know if you're playing like you're only in your own head and trying to do something that's completely just stepping on everybody's toes or your volumes at a disproportionate level you know something that shows that you're not in the moment and making music as a group Mm -hmm. um that stuff drives him crazy yeah 
Um, you know, he's forgiving. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, he, he's not, he doesn't beat you up about that kind of stuff. He only beats you up if you're not serving the music and not doing your best to play great music. Right. Right. Uh, it, <laughs> it reminds me of a, a buddy of mine in Kansas city who was talking about like his tendencies in, in romantic relationships. And he said, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when I love someone, when I'm in a relationship with someone, I want to give them everything. And all I ask in return is everything <laughs> that that strikes me as kind of how Peter approaches music. Like I am giving all of myself all the time and I expect you to do the same. And if you're not, you're wasting my time and everybody's time around you. Right. Right. Yeah. Man. Um, so you played, you played in this trio with Peter and, and Vardon. Uh, did, was that kind of the beginning of, of more opportunities to play with him? Um, sort of. I mean, you know, I live in Portland. He lives in L.A. Right. Um, so it's it's only very specific opportunities. Usually once or twice a year mm-hmm. we'll do a tour. It's usually been that trio. Um, I've done the Dr. Um tour once, subbing for Ben last year. Do it again coming up. And uh, every once in a while he'll try and get me on certain things if there's an opening for a bass chair and he thinks I'd fit. Yeah. Uh, we did the Jaco Pistorius big band tribute gig uh spent a week in in tokyo wow um at the blue note with was that that was um maybe the the early early tweens (laughs) (laughs) gotcha um is there video of that somewhere there's gotta be right yeah there's a handful of things on youtube cool uh, including one uh from a jazz festival we did right before heading out of town um, that was the first time I ever had a full-fledged panic attack is when I got the offer to do that gig because it was me and Richard Bona. Oh, wow. And I was like, you know, I'm no Jocko. And, I mean, Richard can out-Jocko Jocko, so what the <laughs> hell am I going to do? Oh, no. Two things came out of that. One was that I quickly realized they called me, so I'm just going to play the best that I can in the way that I would play it. I'm not going to try and sound like Jocko. Right. I'm going to bring my four string fretless, you know, with chorus and try and do the Jocko thing. Cause I can't do the Jocko thing. Right. Um, and the second thing that it did for me was show me what, uh, you know, uh, what a motivational factor, you know, fear can be. <laughs> I was so paranoid that I was just going to, you know, kind of eat shit on the gig that once I got the music, I was running every tune in that set two, three times a day for a solid month. Um, wow. and, uh, relentlessly, you know, hammering along because I also didn't know what we were going to play. They, uh, Peter Yanalis, who's the guy who recorded the birthday concert. Okay. Um, came and recorded all the gigs and it was ultimately released, um, in Japan. So they were just going to switch up the tunes every night. So all the different bass, but me, Richard and, um, the guy who does the gigs in Florida, I'm totally blanking on his name now. I apologize. Um, you'll think of it. So we could all, all play the different songs and they could get multiple takes on the stuff and then compile the best of. Right. And so it was a ton of tunes. So I just, I, man, I pounded that stuff hard. And then by the time I, you know, got on stage for the first time, I was like, actually, this is cool. I can play all this stuff. Yeah. It's fine. You know, uh, Richard's going to do his thing and that'll flip everybody else out. But I'm, I'm just going to be here playing these tunes and this will be great. Right. Right. And, and we had a blast. Uh, a bassist friend of mine uh, in Atlanta named Kelly McCarty um, told me like I was I was writing his bio and he was telling me about the 
time he spent in grad school just shedding, 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 shedding. And he said when he came out of that, he was like he had he had a confidence that he had never felt before um, because there's you know, there's the kind of confidence that comes from, you know, ego and there's the kind of confidence that comes from positive reinforcement from people, you know, complimenting you or whatever. But he said there's no replacement for the kind of confidence that comes from just doing the work and putting in the time and just knowing like, I've got this, there's no question. Right. Um, That, and that really stuck with me. I've, I've been thinking about that ever since. And like you, there are some gigs that I've just like, play the tunes, play the tunes, play the tunes over and over and over. Um, and by the time you get to the gig, you're, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. Solid. And, you know, cause, it, and there's so many things that can go wrong on a gig too. Your sound could suck, you know, right. whatever happens, happens. So, um, you have to be confident enough when you're in the optimal environment in the shed. Right. That once you get to a suboptimal environment, you can still play the tunes and you're still comfortable. Yeah. I've I've kind of taken that approach with me with most everything I do. I mean, uh, in music, you know, I like to show up to rehearsal sounding as if I've already done the gig a dozen times. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I just want to know the stuff so well that it, that it's not in question. Yeah. And if you know, and if somebody else, if the band is shaky on forms, I need to be that much more solid so I can drive the train and we don't you know fall off the cliff. Right. I've I've been in situations where like I. Uh, you know, I would learn, I would learn tunes, um, and, you know, feel pretty prepared going into rehearsal. But if, you know, there were situations where, you know, the guitarist didn't play that lick, you know, the bar before the bridge or whatever. And I was, I was waiting for that. I was looking for it and it didn't happen. And because I didn't know the tune well enough, like, you know, like you said, if, if I know it well enough, I can lead it. I can, you know, um, right. It's it's funny when that happens when we're shedding because uh, yeah we get used to hearing the music one way right you know a hundred times and then as soon as you start to play you're like oh this is totally different yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You> know, I, <laughs> not, I thought I, I thought I knew what was going on but I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, you know, playing playing drums uh, affected your your bass playing. I mean, do you still play drums? No, you know, I, I put them down for so long that now I just get annoyed when I sit behind my kit. Because <laughs> I'm so bad. Um, yeah, it's astounding. Like I, when I started playing bass, I was like, I, you know, I'll always be a good drummer. You know, right? That, that. now let me work on this. And uh, yeah, sure enough. Uh, 16 years later or whatever, you know, it's, it's not where it used to be. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think pl- having played drums and having, especially having played them seriously, um, has informed my bass playing in, in countless ways. I think it's made me a better musician on most every level. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly made me a better rhythm section member. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have a lock with drummers, um, that I feel is a direct result of me understanding what they're doing, at least conceptually. And I can usually, you know, kind of read where they're going, what they're, you know, I, I, I feel like I have a more, uh, uh, more psychic connection with my drummers. Right. 
because it, you know, even if I can't do it anymore, I still know I still understand yeah, it. Yeah, it would make sense that you have some intuition into into how we think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, yeah, when we think. <laughs> um, Tariq uh, mentioned that that lately he had been playing some bass and actually like playing some pop gigs, just cover gigs, and and like playing bass in in those uh, situations kind of uh, made him realize what what makes a drummer easy or difficult to play with. Like he thought he had he thought he had kind of a good idea of that as a drummer, but he said when he started playing bass with other drummers. Um, it kind of opened up other other things to him. He realized, oh, this is this is really fun to play with, or this is really a drag to play with. You know, stuff that was already in his drumming. Um, right. Did you have the same experience on bass? Um, k- kind of. I mean, I, I certainly became uh, hyper aware of how some dramatic tendencies, especially with, you know, guys at places like Berkeley that are working on so many things and you tend to play how you practice. Right. So when you spend all day shedding, you know, polymetric, uh, permutations, it's hard to just like, you know, Bernard Purdy your way through the night. Right. Um, and I, I definitely became kind of hypersensitive to, uh, overly complicated and overly busy, um, type drummers, Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, only in the you know, there's always a time and a place for it, but in inappropriate session uh, times. Yes. Um, you know, playing. You know, if you're doing a cover gig and you're playing Superstition, the next thing you know, there's all kinds of over the line bar line groupings of five happening. You're like, yeah. oh, geez, what's going on? Yeah. And it's a cliche to say that like there's there's a time and a place for it. I think that's half the sentence. Like there's a time and a place for it. But but the times and places for that are so few and far between. Yeah, um, yeah. That uh, you know, I think I think drummers especially use that phrase as as a license almost to just decide. Well, this is the time and the place for it. <laughs> on superstition, <laughs> there's a bunch of people here. I'm playing in public. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and you know, uh, you know, it took me a long time to learn that lesson on bass as well. I yeah. was. I hear old recordings of myself and I'm just like, Oh my God, how did I ever keep a gig? Yeah. Uh, But again, there's those, those teachable moments where I had, you know, the right musicians pulling me aside and saying, you know, everything you're doing is great, but you know, I think the music would really be happening if you would just, you know, back off of this and, you know, that kind of thing. And so as long as you're receptive to that stuff and this, and that, that's, that's the kind of advice that makes you, uh, infinitely more hireable yeah yeah and if you're directable you, yeah and you know once you get you know those producers who love working with you and those engineers who love calling you for sessions because of it you know you realize how much more you're working because you you have uh, the strength of ego to just sit back and play whole notes yeah when all it needs is a whole note mm-hmm. um yeah, you kind of more more figure out what things are really about and like oh yeah we're playing music here like i'm not this isn't a, you know, I'm trying not trying to create viral content for YouTube. You know, I'm, I'm trying to pop tune here. <laughs> right. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. 
when Peter was here about a year ago, I guess, he did a, a clinic at Emory University, and he talked about bad habits. Um, mm. And he, he mentioned a couple of his and, and just kind of how he had, he had been thinking about just the phenomenon of bad habits sneaking into your playing out of nowhere and mm. you know at at his age however old he is like he's he's still dealing with it like new bad habits <laughs> are still showing up um and uh it you know it just made me aware of bad habits that sneak into my playing whether they're physical or or musical um are there are there any bad habits you're wrestling with right now um well one is posture Mm, you and me uh, both, man. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, and I know that's as one I, of, as I sit up straighter behind the mic here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and that's one of Peter's too. I mean, if you look at videos of him from uh, you know the '80s or whatever, man, he you couldn't get more hunched over than he was. Yeah. He really just like did the hunchback in Notre Dame thing, and then proceeded <laughs> to swing his ass off. And yeah, I've been very conscious of how I sit when I sit and the position of my bass when I play. And I've been lucky enough that um, I've never had any injuries. You know, I've never had the tendonitis or the carpal tunnel or the anything. Um, but I just realized I feel I feel better when I when I'm aware of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, musical habits. My biggest one is uh, uh, over. Uh, over subdividing mm, yeah. <laughs> everything. I tend to think so rhythmically um, that I have a habit of kind of tapping my fingers on the strings a little bit um, on all of the subdivisions. Yeah. yeah. I became aware of that in a recording session years ago, and it's still something that keeps uh, that rears its head every once in a while, especially if I'm playing um, either kind of a like a timba type gig where it's really funky and there's a lot of a lot of a uh, uh, syncopation happening. Yeah. Or if I'm doing kind of a fusiony gig where there's a lot of you know syncopation and maybe sixteenth note upbeat lines and stuff going everywhere, I tend to really kind of lay out all of the subdivisions. Can't turn that drummer brain off, man. Yeah, I can't turn that drummer <laughs> brain off. And I mean, it's how I think naturally. I've just had to learn how not to um, get it out physically when I'm playing. Yeah. You know, how not to just play all of that stuff and let a long note be a long note and still have the subdivisions going on the inside not the outside yep i i struggle with the same thing just like being (laughs) being still between notes um even if they're eighth notes (laughs) you know like like sometimes i have to kind of check myself to just like don't play any goddamn 16th notes on anything (laughs) anything you know ghost notes are ghost notes but sometimes you don't need ghost notes you know sometimes you just need two and four yeah and yeah, yeah. And other than that, no. Everything else is just uh, emotional and physical. Just trying to get healthier and uh, be healthy of mind and body. And other than that, right. What's your? I'm curious, I'm so, curious as to what Peter's bad habits were. <laughs> um, uh, what were they? Uh, I think it was something something having to do with like Barry and the beater. Um, and he he talked about like the new Vic Firth beater, the wooden beater that he had gotten, um, mm. and how that kind of cured like this tension that he had been. I think that was that was what he talked about. I'm I'm probably not remembering because as he was talking, I was thinking about my bad habits, <laughs> just like ticking them <laughs> off. Like I gotta gotta take care of that. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, he actually, he called out one of my bad habits. He didn't call me out by name, but he said something he notices all the time is when drummers pick up brushes, all of a sudden they start doing like little crash splashes on the hi-hat. Like instead of a, a tight chick, we all right. just start going, psh, psh, psh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yep, guilty, yep. totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he always... Uh, you know whether whether it's with its with what he plays or or what he says he always has an ability to just get everybody thinking about what the hell you're doing behind the kit yeah. is it serving you is it serving the music um i i i think he's one of the i've never taken a lesson with him but i i just think he's one of the greatest educators around yeah and he's and he's uh, so articulate and yes. well spoken and he knows how to speak clearly and concisely and get get across uh you know even more difficult concepts mm-hmm. uh, he knows how to get them across in a way you understand um i remember once when i was in la i think maybe i was uh 17 or something and we were uh i actually got to play drums with him once hmm. we did uh, opening ceremonies for the world cup in 96 wow um, at the Rose Bowl, yeah. and it was a big, huge drum piece that he and Alex Acuna had written and orchestrated. And there was multiple stages, each representing a different continent, playing different things, all of us together. And the uh, North American stage was just six drum set drummers. Wow! So Peter said, "Hey, you want to do this thing?" Um, so I learned the parts, and I stayed at his house while we were doing the thing, and. Uh, you know, first he brought me into a studio to make to watch me play it to make sure that I had it together, and then uh, I asked him about a little. You know, give, give, give me a little drum lesson. You've never actually given me a drum lesson, and it was the most annoying drum lesson of my life because <laughs> <laughs> he had me sit there and just play uh, the swing pattern, ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, on the ride cymbal, right? Nothing else. Yep. For like ten solid minutes. <laughs> And I mean, plus consider that I'm not a jazz drummer at the time. Right. So all the time I'm thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> and I kept saying, well, I've been working on this thing. He's like, I don't want to hear your thing. I want to hear anything. <laughs> I don't want to hear your thing. <laughs> oh, that's great. I've, I've heard similar stories from other drummers, like jazz drummers. You know, they'll they'll be auditioning for USC or it'll be their first lesson with them or something. And, and Peter just says, well, play for me a little bit. And they'll go into the you know, their yeah. Elvin thing or whatever it is and, and just ride and snare and just all kinds of improvisation. And, you know, Peter, I, maybe it was Dan Schnell that said, he said, and then Peter told me like, okay, just like play four on the floor with the ride cymbal and the hi-hat, like no snare. And he did that. And Peter said, okay, take away the kick and took away the kick. And then, it was, okay, just take away the hi-hat, just play the ride. <laughs> like he, <laughs> he immediately strips you down to like, can you make music with one limb on one instrument, like yeah. make that sound good and feel good and then worry about whatever else you're going to do. Yeah. It's, me- it's meditative. And it, it's yeah. also, uh, man, you, when you strip things down like that, uh, you, you really, you really kind of get to the meat of it all. Cause it's easy to obscure and cover up, um, weaknesses with more stuff. Yeah. That's why uh, I think that's why like all the splashes on the hi hat with the brushes, Right? Yeah, because it just yeah. covers up like it obscures, you know, whatever you're doing. 
Exactly. And Andy's right. You know, if you can't make this one thing swing and feel good, then the rest of this stuff doesn't matter. Right. Right. Um, and that's, you know, I, I have a couple of students who are like into jazz and, and wanting to, to learn more. And I'm, I'm really trying to take the Peter approach, like make that ride symbol feel good first. We'll talk about right. the snare chatter next month or something, but yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll eventually get to the Daphnis Prieto stuff. But for <laughs> now, <laughs> I will never get to the Daphnis stuff. I, man, <laughs> that, that dude is just on another plane. He is on planet Daphnis. Yeah, he very much is on planet Daphnis. I, I interviewed him uh, six months ago or so, like right when his, his big band record was coming out. Um, nice. And, you know, I have, I have some experience in, in Afro-Cuban and, and Latin music, uh, so I could, you know, he was talking about the book he wrote and, and you know, his rhythmic approach, his whole rhythmic philosophy, and um, I, was on, I was on board with some of it, but I could tell he was, like, just really skimming the surface of what he was capable of. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah, dude is, that dude is deep. <laughs> oh, man. Scary. Scary. Um well, what's uh, what's coming up for you? What's 2019 looking like so far? Well, a uh, little. I'm home a little more this year. Last last year, I was gone about six months out of the year total. Hmm. Um, on the road a bunch. This year's a little lighter, but uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, going to Canada with Gino in a few weeks. Go to uh, Europe with Peter a week after that, and go back to Hawaii with Gino a week after that, and it kind of. Kind of riding like that throughout the year. Cool, cool. Yeah, then home for home for longer chunks in between periods of frantic a- activity. Right, <laughs> and, which is, which is nice because I've been I've been um, playing with. There's so many great local musicians, and some of these younger guys coming up in the scene here are just killing. And I finally gotten had time to start playing with some of these guys, and uh, and girls, and it's it's fun. It's uh, been kind of discovering a whole new whole new world of music here in portland yeah and is it is it something that um kind of inspires you to to want to um build more groups there or or kind of um do things that are more of your own making no um i i mean i have uh three albums of my own out and i i, I gave the band leader thing a little bit of a spin mm-hmm I, I quickly realized I have a much better time as a sideman. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, writing for me was something that I started doing just as a way to challenge myself, you know, because mm. I hadn't really ever done it. So I thought, well, you're, you're missing out on one way you could be exploring music. Who knows what you'll learn. Right. So I did that and I did a handful of records and everything. But when it came to booking gigs and, you know, I, I found myself distracted, you know, looking around the room as we're playing, making sure there's enough people in there worried about the cover, you know, making sure I can pay the band what yeah. I want. And I was like, you know what, I'd, I'd much rather just be a sideman. And I'm so busy as a sideman that I'm not, I have the luxury of not having to try right. and lead my own projects. Right. Um, so I, I still do a little bit of writing and I'll probably do another record here before too long. Um, but more just because it's, it's fun. It's a lot more fun if I don't have to worry about making a ton of money on the road to pay people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just come up with some cool music and put together a group of folks I like playing it with and record it and see what happens. Yeah. And you mentioned there's a, there's a generation kind of behind you coming up in Portland. 
Yeah, very much so. Some of whom I know a little bit through uh, coming, you know, teaching at PSU. Um, so I've seen some of the some of the kids come up. Um, but then there's been a, a handful of people that have moved to town recently, and it seems like every time I go to a one, especially the jazz clubs, um, there's some new, you know, 23 year old uh, kid playing something that I've never heard. It just completely flips me out. Right. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying as much as I can to to get in with some of those guys and do some gigs here and there with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't want to become the old guy that none of the new generation hires. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, how old are you? Uh, Forty five. OK, so I'm, I'm 38 um, and I'm, I'm starting to I'm starting to have this inkling of like it's it's going to happen soon. Like I'm I'm going to be the old guy to the. <laughs> <laughs> to the young people, um, and I probably already am to to some of the young people in Atlanta. Um, but yeah, just trying to c- kind of figure out ways to to you know ingratiate myself to them and and um, just One, get get opportunities to play with them. You know, I've made it a point. I've always been of the mind that I'd rather be playing than not. You know, I'd rather do um, if I have a night off. I'd rather do a $50 gig that's that's inspiring, you know, of good music. I don't I'm done with, you know, super shitty bar gigs with bad bands. Right. But like if there's good music happening, I'd rather do a, a $50 gig at a pizza shop with some great players um than just sit on my couch reading or something. Right. Um so I I make it I make it known that people don't need to be afraid to call me for low dough gigs. Mhm. Um, cause I, I realized a lot of people weren't calling me cause they figured I was either on the road or wouldn't want to play for, you know, 50 bucks and a slice of pizza. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, so I've, I've made sure people know that I just like playing good music with good people. So as long as, you know, that part of the equation is there, count me in. Yeah. Yeah. Declaring your eligibility, uh, is really uh underrated i think and there you know there there are good ways and bad ways to do that but um just sure. you know making making sure people know where you stand about about playing their gig or that kind of gig or um you know it can really lead to if nothing else some really fun musical experiences and who knows what else yeah, exactly. And I've had I've had bands call me up asking for good student recommendations. Like, do you have any you know students that you think might be into this? Um, gigs don't pay all that much, but you know whatever. And I'm always like, well, here's a few names, but let me know. You know, I'd love to play with you too. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're always like, really? You sure? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've been having fun. I've been playing with all kinds of new folks. That it's been it's been great. Uh, you you probably uh, went through this a few years ago or or are going through it um but like i'm it's starting to happen to me now where like i'm used to being the youngest guy on the gig right yeah. like especially especially in la um but now it's it's happening where like a, a while ago it started happening that a lot of people my same age were on the gig and now it's starting to happen where I'm one of the older people <laughs> on some, Yeah, that's on been happening gigs. to me a lot. Yeah, I have a, I have a gig this weekend um, and I, I'm, I think I'm the only one not in my 20s and that's been happening more and more. Yeah, yeah. Lately, which is a trip, but I, I, you know, I like it. I'm just glad I'm getting to play with the, with the young bloods. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it, it, it keeps you young. Like you, you have a young spirit. You don't look or seem 45. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm still 15 on the inside. <laughs> still playing all those metal drums. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like that's something something I'm conscious of is just to, you know, there there are some ways that we absolutely have to act our age, um, but there are other ways that uh you know we we don't have to we can we can act like a 25 year old sometimes when it comes to playing the fun gig for 50 bucks like let's go do it yeah yeah no i mean i didn't get into music to be you know turned into some stodgy old dude i just want to keep hanging with the young guys and having some fun and playing right. good, you know wherever it comes yeah my my worst my worst well not my worst fear but one of my fears is is being like 55 or 60 and playing only with other 60 year olds for other 60 year olds, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to go down that road. Um, no. Yeah. My, that sort of relates to my biggest fear. I know so many <clears throat> older musicians who, you know, maybe were, uh, like the cat on the scene in the eighties or even seventies who now just don't really have any gigs coming through and are kind of bitter and angry <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, like struggling to pay rent. And, uh, and I, I, I see, I, I can see, you know, I see the various paths that could lead to that place. And that's kind of always been my biggest fear. I don't want to become the angry old jazz musician <laughs> in this apartment, smoking cigars, bitching about the young guys, taking all the gigs. You right. know, I want to be there with the young guys playing the gigs. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Cool. Well, stay out there, man. I'm sure you'll you'll be you'll be right there with them. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna hit you up uh, next time I come through Atlanta. I usually play there once a year with Gino. Oh, cool. Absolutely. Please do, man. Yeah, I'll have to get a hang on. Yeah, that'd be great. And we, man, we we should even play together somewhere. I'd like that. Um, yeah, we could we could hook that up. It's not it's not super often that I'm in the Pacific Northwest, but uh, but I will definitely keep you in mind. Um, man, it was great. It was great talking with you. Thanks for hanging. You too. Thanks for having me, Zach. And I hope I didn't uh, bore all the drummers out there too oh, much. Oh no, I'm, man, <laughs> I, I'm sure a, a fresh perspective is is very welcome. I was actually texting with uh, my my co-host Matt a, about a week ago, and and he was like, "It's about time for another non-drummer." Because like you know, once in a while we'll talk to a bassist or a guitarist or producer or something, and Matt was like, "It's it's time," and I was like, "Well." <laughs> Coincidentally, I'm talking to Damien on on Friday. So good. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks for thanks for chatting, man. It was really really great hanging with you. Yeah, great to meet you in person. Well, sort of in person. Yeah, in digital person. Digital person. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. There you go. Hope you dug Damien Erskine. Once again, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Give us a like and a follow on YouTube. Give us a rating and review on iTunes, YouTube, and Stitcher. And, of course, keep in touch with us. It's always good to hear from you all out there. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.